Uh, we are in week two of our series, the book of Acts, to the ends of the earth. And Acts 2 is a turning point because it's the point in history where the church is born. And all of this happens because of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, Vance Havner is a great author. If you ever get a chance to read one of his books, you should do it. But Vance says this about the Holy Spirit. He says, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor by conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Anybody believe that? Yeah. The very first church was on fire from day one. The early church had none of the things that people often say are necessary for, an, for a church to be successful. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have prime location, all those things. But this church, the first church, was remarkably successful. There were people coming to Christ in multitudes, and they were planting churches all over the Roman Empire. Why did this happen? The church had its ministry energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was the source. The same Holy Spirit that is at work in the church today, even in this church today. And the better, the better we understand what the Spirit of God was doing there at Pentecost, the better we're going to be able to relate to him and experience that same power. Now, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus through the life and witness of believers. And we know this because that's what Jesus said in John 16. This is what he said. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So this morning, first, what I want us to do is take a few minutes and look at what happened on this this second chapter of Acts day, the first day of the church. And what we find here at the very beginning of this text are three phenomenon that happened on, the day, on day one of the church because of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we see is the Holy Spirit came to the disciples. The Holy Spirit came to the disciples. Acts 2, starting with verse 1 through 4, powerful verses here. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. There are three amazing, astonishing signs that happened when the Spirit came. And they're very peculiar, if we can be frank. The first is, there is this sound of a mighty wind. And then the second is, fire that's in the shape of tongues that descends on top of all of these disciples. And then the third is the disciples were praising God in languages that they'd never learned before. The word spirit, interestingly enough, is the same word for wind in both the Hebrew and the Greek. There's, it's the same word. So the word wind oftentimes is used as a metaphor to describe the spirit. So it's kind of interesting that the sound of a mighty wind 
is the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to what happened here. The wind is not something that the people felt, but it was something that they heard. It was the sound of a mighty wind. It wasn't actually a mighty wind. It was the Holy Spirit who just sounded like that. And then the tongues of fire, those symbolize the witnesses of these disciples. The witness of these disciples to those who would be present later that day. Warren Wiersbe, who is one of my favorite authors, you hear me talk about him a lot. He's a, he's a great resource for this entire series, certainly for this talk today. But this is what he writes. He says, combined wind and fire and you have a blaze. And that is exactly what happened with the early church. They were a spiritual blaze. Well, there's a second phenomenon that happened. Not only did the Holy Spirit come to them, but the Holy Spirit filled the disciples. We read that in verse 4. He says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit gives power to the witness. It gives power for the servant. Acts 1, verse 8, we read this last week, tells us this. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus was telling the disciples before he ascends to heaven, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Only God can do that. And he only does it in the lives of people who put their faith in him. You know, we, I was trying to think, how do you illustrate this? That we all have a kind of a basic idea of how a lamp works, right? The purpose of it. A lamp is designed to provide light in a specific place. We shut all the lights off in here and get dark, right? So we need light. But it's also very important that the lamp be plugged into a, a power source, right? Because if there's no power, you know the lamp's not going to work. But if you have it plugged into a reasonable power source and you turn the switch on, voila, that's French, voila, you have light, right? We get it. Now, what's crazy is to think that you could have light if the, somehow the lamp could plug into itself, like you could turn this switch all day, and it's not going to come on. It has to be plugged in to a, a, a significant or serious source of power. And as Christians, we're similar to that. We need to be plugged in to a power source. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to fuel and energize our lives and the work that God has called us to do. Well, that brings us to the third phenomena that we see here in, in the first four verses of Acts 2, and that is the Holy Spirit spoke through the disciples. He came to them, he filled them, and now he speaks through them. We find this in verse 4. He says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The believers were miraculously praising God in actual languages that the disciples had never learned before. They'd never spoken before. In fact, Luke specifically named 15 different geographic locations, and clearly the citizens of those places heard Peter and the others declare the gospel in languages that they could understand. 
Now, the Greek word that's translated languages here refers to a language or a dialect of a specific country or district. What Luke is telling us here is this. People were gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost. Jews from all over that region had come together and were hearing the gospel in their heart language, the language in which they think. The language in which they feel, that's their heart language. Now, why did God do this? Well, for one thing, he allowed the listeners to hear and better understand the gospel because they're hearing it in their their language. But it also united the believers in the spirit as well as it let the people know that the gospel wasn't just for Galileans, but it was for the whole world. The emphasis of the book of Acts is a worldwide movement to evangelize all people. In fact, we talked about that last week. The the main thrust for the talk last week, but a thread that runs throughout the entire book of Acts is simply this. Our purpose is to be a witness for Jesus. Our purpose is to be a witness for Jesus. Now, the sound of the wind captured the attention of people in Jerusalem who were there for the Feast of Pentecost, and so it drew them to the place where the disciples were meeting. And the crowd, it wasn't sure what to make of this. In fact, some of them, we find in the text, mocked and accused the disciples of being drunk from having taken on too much wine. But most of the people who showed up were curiously interested in finding out what this was all about. The Bible says the people were in bewilderment. They were amazed. They were perplexed. The first four verses of Acts 2 make it clear that the Holy Spirit descending upon the disciples, the 120, moved these disciples from huddling inside alone and afraid And it moved them out into going into the whole world to tell others about Jesus. And then what happened next was the Apostle Peter stepped up and started to preach a sermon. And in this sermon, he gives three clarifying explanations that validate the gospel. He doesn't just tell them the truth. He gives them reason to believe it. The first explanation that he gives is what happened. He explained what happened, and that is the Spirit had come. The Holy Spirit had come. As mentioned earlier, some accused the disciples of getting drunk, and they thought this is what the explanation is for why all this foolishness is going on with these different languages. But the energetic worship of the disciples wasn't the result of having had too much wine. Rather, it was the evidence of the Holy Spirit's arrival. Besides, one thing you need to know about Orthodox Jews is that they didn't eat or drink anything prior to 9 o'clock on a Sabbath or on a holy day, and and Pentecost was a holy day. So these 120, they they were good Jews. They were Orthodox Jews. They wouldn't have had anything to drink up to this point. It's nearly impossible to legitimize the claim that 120 of these disciples would 
be able to speak languages they'd never learned before just because they'd had too much to drink. Now, I know some of us think, after we've had a few, that we're much wiser. But have a friend just take a little video of you on their phone, and they'll testify you aren't any wiser. We don't get better, we get worse. Well, that's enough for that. Peter continues in the sermon by quoting from the prophet Joel. And the application of this this prophecy that he shares from Joel is simply this. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that Joel wrote about. The Holy Spirit is here, he says. He is the explanation for what has happened here today. This announcement, this would have seemed remarkable, maybe even incredible to most Jews because they thought God's Spirit was given only to a very select few people. And now here are 120 fellow Jews, men and women, who are experiencing the same Holy Spirit that empowered King David and Moses and the prophets. This indeed was the dawning of a new era. Something was happening here. See, God would bring to completion his plan of salvation for mankind. Jesus had finished this great work of redemption, and nothing more had to be done except except to share the good news of God's grace with the world. And that's where the church came in. That's where we come in. The invitation that Peter would give in verse 12 was simply this, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, there's a second clarifying explanation that Peter gives in his talk, and that is that Peter explained how it happened, how all of this gospel happened, and that was Jesus was alive. Now, I would, I would put an asterisk by this if you're t- keeping notes because, taking notes because this is the most important facet of this entire narrative. Start from Genesis and go all the way to Revelation. If you do not have this facet, if you do not have this moment, you don't have anything. News had spread fast in the Middle East about Jesus. In fact, Probably most of the people in Jerusalem knew about his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And they'd also heard rumors about this official announcement that his followers had stolen the body of Jesus just to make people think that he had kept his word and risen from the dead. But Peter told them the truth. Jesus had indeed been raised from the dead. And the resurrection proves he is the Messiah. Peter gave evidence to the crowd to prove that Jesus had risen from the dead. The first piece of evidence he gives was Jesus himself. He points to Jesus. Now, Peter's audience knew Jesus was a real person, that he grew up in Nazareth. They knew he had performed many miracles, and it was clear that God's hand was upon this man. They'd heard him speak, and his words were powerful. They were moving. They had watched his life. They'd even seen him raise the dead. It's incredible It's incredible to think that this man would be defeated by death. Acts 2, verses 23 and 24 says, This man, uh, Peter says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. 
And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You know, from one point, the crucifixion of Jesus was a terrible crime. But on another point, it was an amazing victory. Well, Peter gives us a second piece of information that validates the the resurrection, and it's found in a prophecy from King David. And this is what we read in verses 25 and following. He says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you, are not aban- you, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Some think that these verses from Psalm 16 that King David wrote are a reference to King David, but obviously they could not apply to David because he was, he was already dead and had been mar- buried. But being a prophet of God, David wrote about the Messiah and how his soul would not remain in Hades or what Luke calls the realm of the dead. His body would not remain in the grave where it would see decay. Verse 29 and through 32, he says, fellow Israelites, this is Peter again, I I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Which brings us to the third piece of evidence that Peter gave the people that day. Peter explains that the disciples were witnesses of the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus didn't appear to everyone, but he did appear to his followers who he had commissioned to give witness to others that he was alive. He spent time with them. It wasn't just a flash meeting or a chance meeting. It was intentional, and and there was significant substance to those meetings. Were Were these people dependable witnesses, though? Can we trust their testimony? Well, think about it. They first had to be convinced that Jesus was alive. You remember Thomas? In fact, we call him this day Doubting Thomas, but he would be a lot like you and me if we were there that day. He missed the first meeting with Jesus, and the disciples are telling him all about it, and he makes this comment, unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hands and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. <laughs> and then Jesus shows up and says, hey, check it out. We wouldn't have been any different, right? These people had to believe it because they had nothing to gain to be preaching a lie. In fact, the message that they would preach would arouse opposition and led to imprisonment and even death of some of the disciples. Now, a few fanatics might be willing to believe and promote a lie for a while. But when thousands of believers are believing in a message... 
And when that message is backed by miracles, you cannot easily dismiss it. And these witnesses, they were, they were trustworthy. Chuck Colson, who is the founder of Prison Fellowship, um, what a great communicator, man of God he was. But at one point in his life, he was far from God. He was an attorney and political advisor to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. Colson went to prison because of Watergate. And he, he was not a very kind and godly man at that point in his life. But later he would come to know the Lord and became a prolific witness for the gospel. He talked about the witnesses of the resurrection. This is what he said about him. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. And everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> Colson said, you're telling me 12 apostles would keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And Colson is exactly right. In fact, I would take it a step further to say, the ex with the exception of John, the apostle, all the other apostles died martyrs' deaths. Who would die for something that wasn't true. But who would die for something so miraculous as the resurrection of our Lord? Peter's conclusion was both a declaration and an accusation. The declaration, Jesus is the Messiah. And the accusation is you crucified him. And it stuck Peter didn't present the gospel as a place where the sinless substitute died, which is true. He died for all of humanity. But he, instead, he said, this is where Israel killed her own Messiah. They, the people he was talking to, had committed the greatest crime in all of history. Was there any hope for them? Yes. For Peter gave a third clarifying explanation that was good news to their hearts. The reason all of this happened was to save sinners. Verses 36 and 37, listen carefully. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The Holy Spirit took Peter's message and convicted those who were listening that day. And they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and that they were guilty of crucifying the Messiah. And then what might God do with them those guilty of crucifying the Messiah. So they asked, they asked Peter, what should we do? And Peter told them how to be saved. Verse 38, he said this. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. Peter first instructed the people to repent. Now, some would say they, they have to believe, but it's evident by their response. These people believe this gospel now. They know Jesus is the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Peter instructs them to repent of their sins. Now, repent is a word that we don't use in normal vernacular very often. You know, we just don't. But in the church, it's a word we oftentimes use. And it means to change direction or turn around. Imagine a man who is, who is following, pursuing his own worldly life course. He's just going along, and all of a sudden, he has an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus changes his life. And then he says, repent, which means make a U-turn and start living your life instead of for worldly purposes. Now you're living your life for kingdom purposes. You're living your life like Jesus. Peter instructs the people to turn around and start living for the kingdom. And then he calls the people to be baptized into Jesus Christ. He said, for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Luke records that the disciples would continue to preach and teach and explain this gospel. Verse 40 says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Peter and the other disciples continued to warn the crowds of the consequences of sin and they pleaded with them to follow Jesus. You see, having spent time with Jesus after his resurrection and now empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples clearly had great conviction to share the gospel and to urge others to follow Jesus. And then Luke summarized that whole day in one verse. Look what he says. He says, those who accepted his message, that's Peter's talk, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's exponential church growth right there. There's 120 and now 3,000 after one day? They'd had one service. 3,000 on that day went from death to life. 3,000 went from darkness to light. They went from hopelessness to hope. Jesus came to forgive sin, and he's the only one who can save us from hell. Who do you know who needs Jesus? How can you share the gospel to people that God puts in your life? Last week I gave a simple plan for sharing the gospel. It starts with prayer, showing kindness, sharing your story, and then inviting people to opportunities to encounter God. Today I want to show you how you can share the gospel as you share your story. It's very simple. Some of you may be familiar with the bridge illustration you can do this on a napkin. You can write this out on a piece of notebook paper. It's very simple. You draw two cliffs with a chasm in between. And the reason there's a chasm here is because of our sin. You have man on one side and you have God on the other. And we're separated by our sin. Now, we know from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that the price of our sin is found in, in Romans 6.23. And it says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we know is that Jesus came and when he died on the cross, he built a bridge across that chasm. 
The sins were washed away for those who put their faith in Jesus. The wages of sin is death, and he paid that death. You and I no longer are guilty of death when we put our faith in Jesus. John 3.16 says, for, the wages, or for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want you to know this. God loved the world, which might be the first time you've ever heard that, but I want you to know you leave here today that God loves you, loves you in such a way that he sent his own son to pay the price, the price of death for your sin so that you might have that chasm closed and have a relationship with Jesus. And then then Peter tells us in Acts 2, verse 38, what we need to do. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a simple illustration that shows us how Jesus forgives sin. All of us, every single one of us, play a part in helping people to decide to follow Jesus. So let's all work to increase the population of heaven. Let me close with this story. Odessa Moore was a worker in the uh, juvenile jail. She was there one day to visit with a young teenage boy who was waiting to be tried on first-degree murder charges. She said his eyes were full of hate and anger, and they talked a familiar story. She said the longer he spoke, the more it became clear. She had heard this story before. Father's a drug addict, mom's an alcoholic. Both parents were abusive to this boy. They would beat him and tie him up and put him in a closet for hours on end. All of his life, he'd been told he was nothing. No one cared about him, but he was all right with that, he said. I don't care about nobody, he told Odessa. There is someone who loves you, she said to him. No way, he responded, nobody. He didn't believe anybody loved him. You're in here for murder, right? Odessa asked. Yes, and I'd do it again, he said arrogantly. How would you like it if someone came in here tonight, she said. I know you committed murder, that person would say, and they're going to give you the death penalty, but I'm going to take your place for you. How would you like that? And for the first time, Odessa Moore said, he showed a spark of life. Are you kidding me? That would be great, the teenager said. Odessa went on to tell him about Jesus, the prisoner who did take his place who had already paid the price for all of his wrongdoings. Using word pictures, the young man could understand. She had obviously never seen or heard the gospel before. But she walked him through concepts of sin and repentance and forgiveness and freedom in Christ. And by the end of the evening, that stone-cold teenager had melted, weeping tears of repentance. And that day, he committed his life to Jesus Everyone needs Jesus. No one is too far from his reach. No one is too far from where Jesus can't save them. 
You probably know somebody, maybe not as far away from God as this young man was, but you know somebody who's a heartbeat away from spending eternity without God. Or maybe, maybe it's you. You've never taken that step of faith. Oh, there's reasons that you could say, but you're at this point right now, the convergence of your life and you're listening to this and you're thinking, I don't want to spend eternity without God. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want my life to have meaning and purpose. I want my sins washed away. I want to have hope for tomorrow. If that's you, I'm going to be down front. I'd love to talk to you. Or you can send me an email this week to notestomani at nccleax.org love to talk with you going forward. I'd love to share with you what Jesus did in my life and what he can do in yours. We're going to be down front. I'd love to talk to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the power, the guidance, the wisdom, and the comfort that he gives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll work through this church, that you will help us to connect with people who are far from you, people who who need Jesus today. Guide each disciple here so that others will know Jesus and choose to follow him. We pray in his precious name.